Good morning, Wildwood. Good to be with you all. Um, please um, uh, join me in praying without ceasing, because I have not gotten over this cold yet. Um, I mean, I have, but the, the cough is lingering, so I pray that we will actually get through this message with little to no feedback into this mic. Um, I'm very excited to be here with you all. Um, I've met uh, your pastor, Nathan, um, having some good conversations with him. I've heard wonderful things about Cal, but the thing that I most want um, uh, wanted to come and preach here is because every morning that I come into the office, uh, Pastor Brady Bowman, I walk in, and every day just staring at me is a, is a mug of Millwood that just sits there and reminds me that I have not been invited to preach here yet. And so I'm hoping to walk away with some Millwood paraphernalia by the end of the, by the, end of the day. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, so very excited to be here, and I'm glad to be bringing God's Word to you. If you have your Bibles, please turn with, uh, with me in them to Psalm 32. Um, I'm going to be reading the psalm in its entirety for us this morning. Psalm 32 was one of the seven penitential psalms, what are called songs of penance. And uh, these are the psalms that reflected the Psalter's sorrow, their, their regret over their sin committed against their holy God. Perhaps the most memorable and quoted of these penitential psalms is Psalm 51, where David cries out to God for his sin um, of, um, with Uriah and Bathsheba. And these psalms in general are helpful in helping us understand what true godly repentance and sorrow looks like over our sin. So when asked, the great reformer Martin Luther commented that Psalm 32 was among his favorites. And it is said of Augustine that this psalm was inscribed on the wall near his deathbed so that he might meditate and be comforted by it. And so my hope for us this morning is that if you have not yourself spent any time in this psalm, Psalm 32 would truly prove to be helpful to you. Psalm 32, please um, read along as I read aloud. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Psalm 32. A maskal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through the groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray once again. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the occasion that allowed David to write this psalm. I ask, Lord, that I would decrease that you would increase, and I pray that you would be with me now as I seek to preach your word to your people. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I have a simple outline for today's message. I am just a lowly youth director, so I keep it easy. We have, number one, an explanation, number two, observations, and number three, applications. Pretty straightforward. Our first point, explanation. So this psalm, as you may have already gathered, profoundly speaks on the topic of forgiveness and the joy and the restoration that comes when we confess and turn to the Lord for our help. So it does not merely describe the sorrow that came with the sin, it also speaks of the hope or help that the Psalter received. 
And so my hope for us this morning is that we too would see and savor the good news of the gospel in this psalm. That we would not be fearful to draw near to God through godly confession. That we would be ready to confess more frequently, more boldly before others in God in order that we might experience His forgiveness, but also the comfort, the joy, and the peace, because that means that we also have His favor. The psalm begins by stating that it is a maskal of David. And so anyone preparing a good sermon will go onto Google and try to find out what is a maskal. Unfortunately, Google was not much help, but either were the commentaries because a maskal is something that we still don't know the original meaning of. It just was something that was often used because of these are songs. It might have been some kind of musical direction. It might have been some way that the music ought to have been played, but we don't have much information on what a maskal is. So some believe it has something to do with how it's performed. Others think it's a way to prime the reader uh, with a certain type of contemplative life lesson that should be applied and learned. It's kind of like a good Garth Brooks like country song, right? You're going to get a good beat, but you're also going to get a little bit of a lesson, right? And so I tend to agree with that understanding of what a mascal is trying to do to prepare the reader. Now, as to the sin that produced the occasion of David having to write this psalm, we are also left scratching our heads. Some commentators believe it's connected to the sins, like I said earlier, of Uriah and Bathsheba, but nothing appears concrete. Perhaps David then purposefully left the sin that he had committed ambiguous in order that the instruction and the truths that we are reading about this morning in the psalm could be more broadly applied regardless of specific circumstances or categories of sin. And so what that means, it's less important what the particular sin of David was this morning, but it is much more important to learn what David received. So all of that to say, the psalm is written in such a way to provide helpful instruction about the nature of felt sin and shame and then personal confession. The type of help that God gives in the midst of sinful sorrows, and of course, the pardon and the joy only God can give us. And so Psalm 32 opens in verses 1 and 2 with this glorious pronouncement that blessed is the man who finds his transgressions forgiven and his sins covered. So the first thing the Psalm 32 is inviting us into is that we would want to have this blessedness. If there's anybody here this morning who has walked in with a heavy heart, they feel the burden of their sin, this Psalm is offering something enticing. It is an offer of blessedness, of peace, of happiness that can only be had when we come and confess our sins to God, and that is for you this morning if you are feeling that way. So that is verses 1 and 2. And so in verses 3 and 7, David then shares his experience that led to that blessed state. First and obviously, we need to realize that sin had separated David from God and enjoying this blessedness. There is a period here of unresolved anguish and turmoil but then that gives eventual rise to acknowledgement of the sin. That acknowledgement then becomes the primer for then honest confession and repentance, which then crescendos in the experiencing of God's forgiveness. And so you can track then in the psalm as you read it the change of disposition David has as he is brought into humble submission and confession. He experiences real relief. He experiences God's presence once more and the sweet peace of the Lord that then sparks his praises. And so then, finally, in verses 8 through 11, the speaking shifts from David to the prophetic words of God himself spoken through David. So the first half of the psalm records the experience of David. The second half represents the promise and the warning of God through David. And so as a whole, the psalm paints a, a very clear picture 
of our need to confess, to repent, and to turn away from the burden of our sins that hinders joy, that hinders peace with God. And if we will not, what are the ongoing consequences if we will not come? And so the thrust of our psalm this morning is this, that we can know true peace and experience, lasting comfort when we bring our guilt, our shame, and our sin to the Lord. To be made right with Him is to be made right in our own souls. And so He receives our confession. He makes atonement through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that our sorrow can be replaced with invincible joy, weakness with strength, and anxiety with peace. That is the promise that is being held out to you in the psalm this morning. And so two things I want to bring to your attention before we go to our second point. Number one, this psalm offers no lasting peace or comfort to those who cling to self and self-preservation. So one may confess boldly to priests, one may confess to their therapist, one may get momentary catharsis from telling a friend, they may draw temporary um, comfort from their accomplishments of doing good, they might have the fleeting enjoyment of the praises of men when they do right, but the truth of God's Word this morning is that unless you have confessed to God and brought your guilt to Him, you have no chance of knowing this blessedness. And so I don't want you to treat the psalm this morning as formulaic, where you merely follow some steps, apply some practice of penance and confession, and then you can just expect to experience what this psalm is talking about. This peace, this forgiveness, this absolution, this blessedness is strictly and only for those who have confessed their sin to a holy God, who have trusted that His Son, Jesus Christ, has bore their sin at Calvary. It is for those who have called upon the name of Christ and have been made right with God through His cross. And so I say this because there are those, even now, whom the evil one is blinding, who has deceived them into a lull of false relief, of pacifism. Many claim that they have peace with God, but they have not made peace with God through His Son. That kind of peace is manufactured. That kind of peace is artificial. That kind of peace is fraudulent. The kind of peace that we need can only come from God. And so, just confessing but not confessing to the Lord is of no substance. It has no economy with God. And so I just want to be very clear and upfront that no one would be hardened any further and merely think that they just need to confess to somebody and that all will be made well. You need to bring your sins to God and seek God's solution, Jesus Christ. But number two, I tell you that if you are a Christian and you are reading this psalm, that is not just for the wayward sinner. God desires you to know this peace again and again, even when you have failed and fallen again and again. This psalm is delivered to you with the intention to remind you of God's love and favor towards you, that while you were at your worst, Christ died for the ungodly, so that you would then freely confess and receive forgiveness again when you have fallen short of His glory that you would experience again His all-sufficient, saving grace. That the same God that has saved you in the past is the same God that sustains you in the present and into eternity. This enables us to be free and honest as Christians to confess and to relinquish all forms of self-preservation and self-righteousness. Psalm 32 is a call not just to the wayward Christian, the stumbling one. It is to any sinner alike who feels themselves wasting away under the burden that sin brings for unrepentant sin. It is a call to rejoice again and again in the God of our salvation, in your sins being forgiven 
and washed away in the blood of Jesus. And so I hope today many of you will be met with the comfort of David when he says in Psalm 51 that God would restore to you the joy of your salvation or that even today you might finally obtain salvation through the message and the good news of Jesus Christ. So friends, that's point number one, an explanation. Let's now turn to point number two, observations. What are we seeing here in the text? What does our text have to say about the nature of sin and confession and their effect on us? Well, number one is that unconfessed sin affects our temperament. Unconfessed sin affects our temperament. And it happens in two different ways, in a very natural way and a very supernatural way. First, let's look at the natural way. We see the natural effect of unconfessed sin in verse 3. Here David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning. If anyone has taken a college-level intro course to psychology, there's this very technical term. It's like the first thing that you learn. It's called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is one of the first things you learn in an intro psych course. It's this uncomfortable and kind of stress-induced experience when our behaviors don't match our value system. So the most classic example that's used is a person who knows that smoking is bad for you, smoking uh, causes cancer, it's harmful to others, it's harmful to your own body, but they themselves cannot stop from smoking. And so they have this cognitive dissonance. Now, the world may try to get around moral guilt of their actions by calling things dissonance, but I prefer a more classical term before psychology came along to try to tone down that moral responsibility that we have to a holy God. David simply has a case of what we call a guilty conscience. It's a guilty conscience. David is speaking to the inner turmoil of his guilty conscience before God. It's affecting his whole mood. It's affecting his whole person. Here is a man who had committed some sin, but he is unable to open up or speak out about it. Like us, we think that ignoring our sin will make it go away. But sin does not simply go away. While David tried to keep silent, he writes that that process caused his bones, his inward being, to begin wasting away from bottling it up inside. It's as if not confessing the sin, the sin was poisoning him on the inside. And it's as if he's trying to get it out, to get it to escape, but he can't mutter anything. So it's groaning. It's just overflowing and oozing out of him. He groans because he is forcing his silence. We should note here that the tremendous amount of work it causes that it is induced on us when we try to suppress the truth of our wrongdoings. We all know the experience. You've committed some sin, and the last thing you want to do is approach, confront, or verbalize that sin to anyone. But you're torn between, I really want to get this off of my chest, but I also don't want people to know what I did. And so you're torn between the two, and you can't decide. And so what we do is we rationalize. Well, I, I, I can't tell that person that. It's going to be a lose-lose situation. They're going to be upset. They're going to be hurt. I'm going to feel even worse. There's just no point in confessing at this point. It does no good to do anything. But the problem is, you still know what you did. And even if you could suppress that guilt, you know that God knows what you did. And that silence begins to eat you up on the inside. And so what happens when you begin to have to exert all this energy, spend all this thought process suppressing and keeping silent? Your temperament begins to change. You begin to transform as a person if it elapses long enough. If you go from days to weeks to months to maybe even years, people used to say, well, you used to be such a happier person. You used to be so much more jovial. But now you're kind of characterized by your temper. You're kind of quick and you're not as patient. Your personality is beginning to change. 
and the mental stress of holding this in, your consciousness is just pricking away at you, you grow in more distress, and now more mental energy is having to be given to suppress the negative feeling, and that makes you tired. Oh, you are always so tired, brother or sister. And that makes you become irritable. It makes you impatient with your friends, your family, your children. And so then you want to isolate yourself. You don't want to add sin to sin. And so you'll get away from anything that will remind you of that thing that you just don't want to speak of. This is what David is describing in verse 3. Our mind is trying to reconcile the tension alongside our values and the things that you have done that are now in conflict. Yet all of that seems better in the moment in comparison than being exposed for what our sin is and confessing our weakness or our wrongdoing and the horror of our sin. Notice that sin loves to hide It loves to lie to us about how dangerous it is to come out and confess. It's deceitful. David allures to this at the end of verse 2. He says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Sin is lying to you to stay quiet. Sin wants to lie to you by saying what you did, the things that you are hiding, if you told anyone about those things, there is no forgiveness for you. Or, if it's a repeated offense, you've you've confessed it in the past, but now you've done it again. It accuses you. Look at you. Still struggling with this sin? No one is going to think you're sincere. What's the point of confessing again? You're just going to fall. You're just going to have to ask. Why speak? Wait until you're a little bit better. Why don't you get some good works under your belt, and then maybe you can confess so that you can tell people that you've made a little bit of progress and you're on the right path. So we stay silent and we fall again because we were weaker than where we were before. We didn't get the blessedness of feeling the absolution and the forgiveness God can give. And then that bitter cycle goes on and on and we spiral down more and more. This is the deception of sin and it changes us. It wants to isolate us. Sin doesn't want you to be free of it. It wants to enslave you. It wants to imprison you and control and destroy your joy. And so we groan in silence. We waste away inwardly. That is the natural effect of keeping our sin silent when we know that we must bring it to our God But there's also a supernatural effect here on our temperament that's caused by God. Unconfessed sin also arouses the loving and the disciplinary hand of God to try to waken us up from our stupor. When one of his own is burdened with sin, while sin goes unconfessed, it is having its effect on us. God is also at work. But the way that we think God might come to our aid is probably not as intuitive as many of us think. Look with me at verse 4. David says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as if by the heat of summer. Now, when I uh, preached this sermon the first time years ago, all I knew was New York summers. And then I moved to Texas, okay? Now I know what this verse actually means, to be dried up under the heat of summer. But you know how it is. You can barely drag yourself to the beach or the pool because it's just so exhausting to be out in the heat. So what does it sound like God is doing? It sounds like He's just beating us down even more. Like He is adding insult to injury by sapping us of all of our strength to go on. Well, perhaps... What David came to realize is that God had to deplete David of all of his strength so that he would begin crying out to God for his. You see, God has a good purpose in sapping David of all of his energy. For the Christian, God has become our heavenly father. And like all good parents, when your child is out of line and moving toward danger, You don't abandon the child at that crucial moment. You press in. You lean in harder. You make your presence known, and it's most often in a very disciplinary way. 
And so there's nothing casual about the adoption process that has allowed us to be a part of the family of God. If you are in by the blood of Jesus Christ, you're in and God is going to get you. God is going to transform you into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next, whether we go kicking and screaming or if we go along his way and listen. You will be holy as he is holy. Hebrews 12, 6 through 11 says this, For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Pause there for a second. The presence of God's discipline in your life is not God trying to tell you of his displeasure with you or a sign that you are at risk of being disowned from the family. The presence of discipline is the sign of God's love and the legitimacy of your adoption. If you are not feeling conviction, if you are not seeing the Lord's hand heavy upon you when you are in sin, that is a frightening state to be in. Because that might mean that you're not a child of God, you're a son of perdition. Discipline from God is a good and glorious thing in whatever form it takes in your life. God is trying to draw you back in. And we see why in verse 9 of Hebrews. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined for us for a short time as they seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, this is what David is experiencing when he says the Lord's hand was heavy upon him. It is a loving father disciplining his beloved son. And so, this psalm informs us that it is quite normal to have the loving hand of God on the person that he's working on, whom he is calling back to himself. It was for David's good to bring him back to repentance, to bring him back into fellowship with the Lord, to be brought back to that blessed state. It is the love of God, not condemnation, that he might deplete us of all our human strength so that we would cry out for more of his. So, beloved, I ask you, is God's hand heavy on you this morning? What is God doing for you? What is God doing for you as we talk at length about guilty consciences and unconfessed sin? Perhaps as as I have been speaking, the sin that most likely you want to keep silent about has been flashing across your mind. Maybe it's something simple, like maybe you said something hurtful to your spouse this morning. Maybe you said something to a friend that you regret. Maybe it was to a coworker earlier in the week. And you know that you have to confess because the Lord's been convicting you of it. It hasn't gone away. Maybe it's the content that you listen or watch to. Maybe your life is not being brought into conformity with Christian living. It's the unwholesome way you speak when other Christians are not around, or your, your language is not honoring, or you, you jest, or you have lewd banter, vulgar, critical. Maybe you're unkind to certain someone in your life. Or maybe there's just something that is, I mean, really heavy, something that you have left unconfessed for years because you know that it, to come out now with that would be shocking. It would be egregious something that you've been hiding from your spouse, your parent, or a loved one. Maybe it's too much time spent with that coworker of the opposite sex at work. 
Maybe it's addiction to illegal substances or drugs. Maybe it's an addiction to pornography. Maybe you are stealing or cheating from your company, either through money or your time or customers. Maybe you're fudging the books. Maybe you're cheating on your taxes and convince yourself that's what everybody else is doing. Whatever it is, you know, and God knows, and it has been burdening you. And it's changed you. You've acted differently because you haven't been able to speak out about this. Friend, if you are God's child, if you are adopted, it means you're abundantly loved. And this burden of silence, this wasting away, this sapping of your strength, I pray it will not go away. In verses 3 and 4, these feelings, these struggles, these burdens that are weighing on you, they will be unrelenting if the Lord is after you. Hear how David describes it in verse 3, all the day long. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. These experiences, your changing temperament, are persistent. They're going to be ongoing. They will not disappear if the Lord has His hand on you. Now, that can be a little bit overwhelming. That feels like, well, there's no hope. But here's the good news, observation number two. Confessing sin initiates restoration and healing. Confessing sin initiates restoration and healing. At the end of verse 4, we see this word, Selah, that kind of comes up in the Psalms every so often. We sometimes gloss over these words because we don't know its meaning. It's very much speculated still what the exact purpose of Selah is in the Psalms. But the word frequently shows up in the Psalms, and most commentators, most people know at the very least it is probably a pause. It's a break that's been interjected into the song, into the refrain, and it's like a stopping point. Meditate there for a second. Meditate on what you just read. Pause and consider for a moment. And so this stuff that David's been describing, it does sound really overwhelming. God, this is too much. My my bones are wasting away. I can barely get up in the morning. I'm carrying this around every day, and nobody knows. My strength is gone. It's day and night. My sin is ever before me. Salah. And now we transition to verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I, I did not cover my iniquity, and I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. David is having a moment. He's coming to the end of himself and saying, I need to confess. I need to go to God. Now, don't miss this church. And you forgave. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is good news, church. This this should move us to tears. This should wipe away all of our fears because God is making a promise. Forgiveness follows genuine confession with God. How amazing are these words to the guilty sinner? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Yahweh, God Almighty, the only holy, righteous God who there is no other, I have sinned against you. I have offended you. I have fallen short of your glory. And when I confessed, you forgave the iniquity of Of my soul. I confess my sin. I confess my sin and you forgave me. Oh, it sounds too easy, doesn't it? It sounds too easy. I just got to confess and I will have this peace. I will have forgiveness. But of course, for anyone who has actually done it and confessed it, it is nothing short of the grace of God. Simple enough for a child to understand, but impossible apart from childlike faith that believes that there is mercy, love, and grace in a holy God. I confess my sin, says David, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
I mean, is there any other line in Scripture more refreshing, more relieving, more freeing, more life-giving than to hear that a perfect, holy, righteous God forgives you? Does that do anything for you today? Consider Luke 7. In Luke 7, there's a woman of the city who comes into the house of a Pharisee, Simon. She slowly approaches Jesus with tears in her eyes. She falls at the feet of Jesus with her hair and anoints his feet with oil. And Simon the Pharisee is is watching this scandal unfold in his home. And he says to himself, if this man was a prophet, if he knew the kind of woman who was touching him, she's a prostitute. She's a woman of the city. She's a sinner of the worst kind. And classic Jesus, right? Oh, I know what you're thinking, Simon. And what does Luke 7:40 record for us? Simon, I have something to say to you. What is it, good teacher? Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. However bad you think your sin is to you, to the person you sinned against, to other people, to the onlooking world, it is more wicked, it is more heinous, it is more monstrous in the eyes of a holy God. But let me tell you what Scripture says. To those who confess, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 Brother or sister, if you have not yet come to know this God who forgives, His name is Jesus Christ. He stands ready to be your advocate no matter what sins or wrongs or guilt you bring to the table. There is a cross upon which He died so that you might be made right with His Father in heaven and that you might know His peace, that you might experience joy and blessedness. He rose from the dead three days later. He conquered Satan's sin and death. And he intercedes now for his elect people, for his children, and empowers them by his Holy Spirit. And so I hope if someone in here is visiting or is a guest or who has not just heard the gospel message, the good news, that you would place your faith in Jesus Christ, that you would turn away from your sin, that you would find relief for your parched soul. And so whether you're hearing this good news for the first time or whether you've heard it for the thousandth time, that you would come to the fountain of living waters and drink. Drink because he says it's free of charge. Come, drink, be satisfied, and be made right with your God. So if that's you, what should our confession be characterized then? What what does that confession even begin to look like? Very quickly from verses 5 through 7. First, David does not hold back in his confession. He does not hold back in his confession. When David confesses, he doesn't sugarcoat it to God. In verse 5, it says, I acknowledge my sin to you. It wasn't her sin. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't their sin. There wasn't blame shifting. There wasn't a de-escalating. There wasn't excuses being made. David owns up to the reality of what happened. I acknowledge my sin to you. Not just confiding in another person, but David confesses to God. He goes on to say, I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't beat around the bush. I didn't try to minimize it reduce the charge, fluff the details. He is honest and real with what he did. He confesses boldly. Secondly, David actually verbalizes his confession in prayer. He verbalizes it. If any of you are like me, you've been in church for a long time, sometimes I let my theology get in the way of my actual practice because we all know God knows the thing that we know that we did. And we're turning it over in our head all the time. It keeps going on again and again. 
We can't hide it from God. David knew that God knew. And because we know that's true, that's all we do with it. That is all we do, just this bouncing around in our head. But we never actually get around to verbalizing it, to telling, speaking, praying to God what it is we've actually done. And so I'm wasting away. I'm crushed in spirit. I want help, but I don't actually go to God to get help. I don't ask aloud. But look at verse 5. David said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. He's now speaking out loud. It's in quotes. David knows God knows what he did. And he finally gets around to verbalizing the sin issue to God. He begins to speak with God, not as some kind of abstract idea, but a person, relational. We sometimes forget that God is a person that we actually communicate with. And the process of verbalizing sin has the effect of drawing out the problem. It's, it's making it real. It's being real with the problem. And it is in that proper space of acknowledgement, God can then begin the work of restoration. So the third thing that we see, the forgiveness is immediate. The forgiveness is immediate. David confessed, God forgave. David confessed, God forgave. It's the pattern we see all over the Scriptures, and yet we are so fearful that we won't be accepted by God or that we'll have to just follow some kind of 12-step program and do some kind of rosary beads or whatever it is to kind of, we got to do all these things before we're going to get forgiveness. But forgiveness is a gift in which we do nothing to earn. You don't do anything to earn it. All God is asking you to do is to recognize the sin recognize the problem, and then come to Him for help. Stop going to other sources. Stop going to other places to try to solve the problem that only God can solve. You don't work for your forgiveness. It's freely given when we are least deserving of it. And when we go to God and acknowledge it, our unworthiness, that is when we receive the gift. It's immediate in its application and effect. Four, David, having been forgiven, is restored in the benefits of fellowship and intimacy with God. Now the benefits come right after he speaks of. So sin inflicts distance between us and God. There is separation there. When we are not being honest, God's hand is heavy on us in repentance, um, to bring us to repentance. But then in verse 7, when he receives the forgiveness, David breaks out into praise. He is and he feels delivered and is in the presence of God. You are my hiding place. You preserve me. You surround me with deliverance. All of those descriptions are pointing to the felt reality of the reconciliation. He feels God in a way that he did not feel before. And the peace and comfort that all Christians truly know when they come to God and know that they are washed, that they stand right, they have a clear conscience before God and men, they enjoy these realities. And so the two observations I gave, unconfessed sin affects our temperament, and then number two, uh, confessed sin leads to restoration and healing. And so this is what God's Word is calling us to, and here's our last point before I close some application. These will be quick. This may seem redundant to you at, you at this point. I've been saying it a lot. Number one, application, confess. Confess urgently. David adds a warning in the midst of his praise in verse 6. He says, Therefore, let anyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you might be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. I think the hard reality of what David is saying is that there will come a time when the Lord may not be found, that you tarried too long, 
pleading, and praying will make no difference once God has delivered the sentence on judgment day. We do not know the day or the hour of His coming. We do not know when He will return again, and we will have to stand before Him and to give an account. The time for mercy is now. The time to confess is today. Think of the example of Esau who sold his birthright. He later desired a blessing. He wanted the blessing that was originally his, but he was rejected. He had no ground for repentance, though he sought it with tears, Hebrews 12, 17 tells us. The warning and application for us today is to confess and to confess urgently. Do not wait. Do not tarry. You do not know. If you do not know Christ this day, let today be the day of salvation. And if you are a Christian, then what are you afraid of, brother and sister? He forgave you in Christ through His blood already. Repent and believe. Receive Christ. For those of us in Christ, do not delay. Let the truths of this text refresh us again in our salvation. Let us consider all the benefits that we are leaving on the table, all the benefits of God's promises, that He will deliver us with joy and expectancy. Here's what God says about those who confess their sins in verses 8 through 11. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all upright in heart. This is what Psalm 32 and the whole of Scripture teaches. When we confess truly and wholly to God, He will not only forgive, He will abundantly bless. Confess your sins to Him today. Application two, don't be a horse. Don't be a horse. Confess frequently. Verse 9, do not be a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. What God is saying here is this. Don't wait for the hand of the Lord to crush you into the ground. Run first to the hand of the Lord to lift you up. I don't know many things about horseback riding. I know we're in Texas. I still haven't seen many horses, but perhaps you know what a bit in a bridle is. Horses that are being trained have this complete weird-looking mechanism around their face because they're very stubborn. They're very untrained. They're just unruly. They're going all over the place. Well, the bit and the bridle keep them in line so that the person who's training them can lead them in the right direction. It controls them. And so the rider or trainer can then get direction to the horse. And so what God is saying here in this text is, stop resisting. I do not want to use bit and bridle with you. I don't want to see you straying away from my love and instruction. Guys, I, I'm so guilty of this all the time, right? When I fall into sin, when I need God, I will exhaust all of my resources, all of my energy, everything before actually going to God and humbly saying, all right, I, I tried doing that, but it didn't work. So uh, will you come in now? Will you help me out now? Don't do that. Don't wait till the last moment. First things first, go to the Lord. When you are defeated, when you are distressed, when you are discouraged in your sin, go to the Lord. He will forgive you. As Christians, we need to be okay with weakness and being humble and understanding enough to know that God will forgive us of our sins and deal with our issues. So brothers and sisters, let, let this be true of every Christian in here. When I say that we are to be more desperate for Christ today, we are to be more ready to confess freely our sins today than when we first believed because we've been experiencing the grace of God. We know what He does. We know what happens when we come to Him. It should be easier now knowing what God saved us from and where we were. Having known His saving grace, we should be more able and willing to confess boldly and frequently than when we first believed. Let us not be like a horse 
who continue to need to be reined in the hard way every time. Like, oh, I could go through this whole entire rigmarole with you. Enjoy the peace, the comfort, and the deliverance of your God who loves you. Confess urgently. Confess frequently. And third, be glad, brothers and sisters. Rejoice. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Beloved, if this peace is yours, don't overthink it. You are God's. He has granted you forgiveness through His Son. Rejoice and be glad. Praise His names. Shout for joy. Sing a song. Be happy. Christians ought to be the happiest people around. People should know it. I'm not saying we don't have seasons of sorrow, of loss, of discouragement, but we have something that's invincible, brothers and sisters. We have a joy that is indestructible. The only proper and right response when you have confessed your sin and you see God's forgiveness and you are restored to blessedness is to rejoice. Generally speaking, Christians should be the most joyful people around. Pardon and forgiveness were given freely to each one found in Jesus Christ. If God is for us, who can be against you? What joy is this, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? Let us receive the gift of forgiveness and the healing with thankful hearts that seek then to praise and to glorify and to revel in the beauty, the kindness, the love, the mercy of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that this old book, that these words recorded thousands of years later still ring true today, that you are a God who forgives, that you are a God who sent your Son, that we might be made right with you, that we might obtain such glorious blessedness where we are unworthy but we are so thankful for Jesus. Help us to confess boldly, urgently, and then praise you for the loving, mighty God that you are. It is in your Son's name we pray. Amen.